Good morning and a warm welcome to Ladywell Baptist Church and to our service of worship uh, this Sunday morning. It's great to be able to worship together as a church family at the beginning of a new week. And so as we come together, that would be our desire, that we would focus ourselves upon God, that we would focus ourselves upon worshipping him as we consider this morning what it is to be a Christian and to be devoted to the glory of God alone. And that will be the subject of our service and of our time together in Scripture a little later on. As we come now to worship, which is what we're here to do, then we hear God's word in Micah chapter 7, right at the very end of the whole book of Micah. We hear these words, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? And passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. It's a joy for us to hear these words at the end of Micah, that there is hope for us and for our world, that the Lord does not want to simply judge all of this world because of his, um, his frustration, his anger against sin. It is his desire that sins be forgiven, that people be restored and lifted up and blessed and brought into his family because of the promises that he has made millennia ago to save a people for himself. And we're going to consider together just how amazing God is in doing that work in our time together this morning as we consider uh, that we as Christians are defined by living for God's glory alone. That purpose, the glory of God, is why we exist. It's why we've been saved and why we worship like this week by week. And we're going to consider that Uh, later in our time together. But as we turn to worship this morning, however you have come, whatever your week has been like this week, let's pray together and commit ourselves to the worship of our God and Savior. Let's pray. Our living God and loving Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we may not be entering into your presence feeling particularly joyful this morning. We may have had a difficult, a stressful week. Lord God, we may have had a very busy week and we're simply feeling exhausted. Lord, we may have come feeling refreshed and rejuvenated and ready to pour out our hearts in praise and in thanksgiving to you for your goodness. Lord, however we come to worship you this morning, we ask that we might meet with you, the living God, and know your presence in our midst. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us not just with a knowledge of your presence, but with a desire to worship you. And Father, we pray for our whole fellowship. Lord, whether we are gathered in families and households this morning, whether we are on our own, Lord, whether we are um, receiving care from friends and family, we ask that we all might know that we are gathered together by your Holy Spirit, which dwells within us and enabled to worship. So, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would receive our praise and our thanks this morning. You would bless us through your word that in every way, Lord, we might be built up and equipped to glorify your name. 
both within this church fellowship, Lord, within the town of Livingston, but also in the wider world. Lord, in every area of life, we pray you would establish us in our time this morning so that we might be ready to go and live for you and glorify your name in all the earth. Lord God, we thank you for our time together this morning and ask that you would bless us richly in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's reading is from Romans chapter 11, verse 33 to chapter 12, verse 2. O the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us pray. Loving God, we come to you today and thank you for the privilege of praying for others. We are so often the recipient of others' prayer and understand how powerful intercessory prayer can be. We thank you that through your name we can come boldly before you and pray with confidence, according to your will, and know that you will hear us. Loving God, help those who are dear to us, who are near and far, and we bring them each before you now. We hold in your presence all who are being cared for in this church and may they all know your presence with them and that you are their strength, their healing and their salvation. We lift up those in our town and those in authority and leadership, both locally and throughout the world, and pray that their lives would be filled and overflowing with the power of your love so that they can make a difference in this world and bring honour to you. We ask for your help in reminding all of us and those that the most significant thing we can do in this life is simply to love you. Fill all of us and those with the Holy Spirit so that we and they can act like you in every situation. We know that we and those we pray for always fall short of your perfection, but help us to do better. Grant us, Lord God, a vision of our world as your love would make it, a world where the weak are protected and none go hungry or poor a world where the benefits of abundant life are shared and everyone can enjoy them, a world where different races and cultures live in tolerance and mutual respect, a world where peace is built with justice and justice is guided by love, and give us the inspiration and courage to build it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Loving God, your desire is for our wholeness and well-being. We hold in tenderness and prayer the collective suffering of our world at this time. We grieve precious lives lost and vulnerable lives threatened. We ache for ourselves and our neighbours standing before an uncertain future. We pray, may love, not fear, go viral. Inspire our leaders to discern and choose wisely, aligned with the common good. Loving God, reveal to us new and creative ways to come together in spirit and in solidarity. And call us to profound trust in your faithful presence. You, the God who does not abandon. We pray and ask all of these things 
In the name of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. What does it mean to glorify God? It's an important question. It's one that uh, the Reformers believed was one of the most important questions in defining what it is to be a Christian man or woman. They took the view, as we've looked over these last number of weeks, that there were several core elements to being a Christian. The first is that we are informed by Scripture and Scripture alone. It alone has the authority to tell us who we are, who God is, and how we are to live in relationship with Him. The, the revelation of God in Scripture tells us exclusively how we are to be saved, what a Christian is. And so we are to come under its authority alone. We find that we are saved by faith alone in Christ. That there is no other means by which we can be saved. We can't work our way towards salvation through our own effort. That we are saved by the grace of God alone in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We don't deserve Jesus' death in our place. He didn't um, owe it to us. God was in no way obligated to save us. And yet he willingly sent his son to die on our behalf. We who were sinners who didn't want to know God wanted nothing to do with him. And yet he sent Jesus who willingly came and laid down his life in order that we might be saved. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone. And we are saved through Christ alone. There is no other Savior, as we read in the pages of the New Testament. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved than that of Christ Jesus. There is no one else capable of saving us. We are not capable of saving ourselves. And lastly, all of this focuses in on God himself. That we live because of all Christ has done for us as a Christian people for the glory of God alone. So we come back to that question. What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean for you to go into this coming week and glorify God in everything you do? How would you even do that? Well, we'll hopefully address something of that question in our time together this morning. There is... Perhaps a more helpful way of phrasing this question. Perhaps that word glory is challenging us a little bit. The word glory ultimately means something like weighty, worth, value. There is one who is glorious, has a gravity about them, a weight about them that draws people to them to focus on that person. You ascribe glory to God or or to another person because of their significance, because of their value or their worthiness. And another word that we might use to describe that process is worship. We worship God because he is deserving of all glory. That is, we honor God, we tell God who he is, and we tell everyone else who he is through worship. So what is a life marked by worship, if a Christian people are to be a glorifying people of God, a worshipping people of God, what does that look like? Well, for a young Martin Luther, several centuries ago, the answer was clear. You become a monk. You 
cloister yourself away from the world. You separate yourself from the world and you go and completely devote yourself every minute of every day to the worship and the service of God. You remove temptation from your daily life and you draw yourself out of the world so that you might be surrounded with the things of God so that you desire nothing else. All you will do is glorify God because that is what you will be surrounded with, things that remind you of God's glory. There is a problem with that, however, and Martin Luther very quickly discovered that over the course of his life. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter how much you try and physically distance yourself from the world around you. You will bring sin with you wherever you go because it is a problem that exists in the very core of your being. You're rotten at your core, and so sin will follow you wherever you go. Temptation will always manifest itself in your life. And the, the temptation to the, the greatest sin of all, to, to not ascribe glory to God, will constantly be present in, in the very core of who you are. You will constantly be led to glorify yourself, to glorify your friends or your family or your job or, or, or the created world around you. Anything, anything else except for God. It's part of what makes us fallen men and women. Adam and Eve in the garden, when they're tempted by the serpent to eat the fruit, aren't simply being tempted to be disobedient to God who had told them not to eat it. They're being tempted to ascribe glory to something other than God, ascribe worth, value, purpose to something other than God, to themselves. They should focus on themselves. They should satisfy themselves. They should do what will make them happy instead of completely devoting themselves to what will make God happy, what will please Him, will tell Him how great and good He is. And we're reminded that that is their original purpose. That's what they were created to do. They were created to reflect the glory of God in creation, to be the pinnacle of creation in the reflecting of God's glory out into the world. And as they sin, they turn and do the very opposite of that. And as we sin, we do the very opposite also. And it doesn't matter how hard we try, we can't separate ourselves from sin to enable us to that end. Martin Luther began to understand this, which is what drove him to start asking questions of Scripture, and that in turn drove him to begin what essentially became the Protestant Reformation, which is why we are here worshipping together in this way on this Lord's Day as Baptist, as Protestant Christians. And so as we ask the same question that Luther asked all those centuries ago, where do we go? How do we understand our lives and the worship that we're supposed to give to God? Why on earth should we worship God? And as we begin there, that will help us look at the question of how we're able to go and glorify God, worship Him with everything that we do. Well, we find this passage in Romans 11 helps us that we glorify God because of His revelation to us. In the first half of this first verse that we've looked at, at the conclusion of chapter 11, we find Paul wrapping up the first two-thirds of his letter to the church in Rome by bursting into joy-filled worship. 
There's a sense in which it's just pouring out of him. He can't help himself. He's consumed by the goodness, the greatness, the glory and the majesty of God. And so it just pours out of him in these verses. He spent 11 chapters explaining what salvation is, explaining how we are to be saved, uh, why we are to be saved, what it means to be saved. He tells us that we can be saved, that we can be declared righteous before God. We can be restored to right relationship, to fellowship with the God who made us. And this God is perfect and holy and just. And even though He is all of those things, He still draws us, who are most imperfect, most unholy, most unjust, into His presence. And through the work of Jesus, through His sacrifice on the cross, our sins are paid for. As we confess them to Him and ask for forgiveness, we are restored. We are credited with Jesus' perfect life. Regardless of whether you're born Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, it doesn't matter. And in that moment, we find that God reveals His glory to us. This is how good, this is how amazing God is that He does all of that For someone like me and someone like you. And it takes just a moment for us to think back over our lives and see just how unworthy of God's attention we are. Never mind his sacrificing his own son so that you might be drawn into relationship with him. Work, the work that you do, the work that I do, speaks about who we are, doesn't it? If your work is consistently shoddy or of poor quality, it says something about your character, about your nature. If we don't care about our work, if it doesn't mean much to us, it says that we're that sort of person who isn't concerned for other things. Not concerned for others, not concerned for ourselves, because we just can't be bothered. Equally, if our work is of a consistently high quality, it says something about who we are. This is how companies market themselves to us, isn't it? This is how Apple is marketed to us as a technology company. However expensive, and their products are ruinously expensive, but they they market themselves on that not being the most important thing. Don't worry about how expensive an Apple iPhone is or a laptop or whatever else it might be. Because we are marketing ourselves on the quality of our product. The quality of the phone that we make and give you. It's worth all of that money because of what you will receive, what you will get when you purchase it. And so people go in their hundreds of thousands to go and buy Apple products despite the fact that they are unbelievably expensive. Because we've believed that message. The quality of the workmanship in this product speaks of the company that Apple is. It speaks of the worth of the product. And it actually speaks to my worthiness in owning this product. I am the kind of person who owns a high-quality piece of technology. And so it speaks about my character as well. And Apple know this. And this is how they've managed to become such a huge company um, in the, the technology market. When we desire things to be done well, we speak about our character, our joy in a job being done well, our satisfaction in worthwhile work, 
having been done to a high quality. And exactly the same is true of God. The quality of his workmanship speaks to the quality of his character, of his nature, and therefore the quality of those with whom he associates. And this is fascinating. Think for a moment about the natural world around you, the world that God has made. Consider the vast expanse of the heavens. It is bigger than we are capable of describing. There are a whole load of videos on YouTube that will show you as best as we are able to describe just how vast, not just our planet or our solar system or even our galaxy, but will attempt to describe the vast nature of the universe. It is unbelievably massive and yet at the same time is unbelievably well-ordered, constructed, brought together, it all fits and works together as one whole. And as you zoom in from the giant scope of the universe down and down and down to our part of it, our galaxy, our solar system, our world, our local community, our individual lives, our bodies, the world on an almost molecular level, on a tiny, tiny level, down right down to the subatomic level, you see care and beauty and intricacy. You see how everything all fits together and works perfectly. It's unbelievable that something so vast and so small can all work. And all of this speaks about the power of God, about the, the scale of His Mind, how can you conceive of something so big as the universe and yet so small as, as the atoms that make everything up and, and hold it all together? How do you create something like all of that out of nothing, as Genesis says God has done, and order it in such a way that it all works? That the stars and the planets spin around one another and life exists in this world. Nature exists. The seasons change. Grass and plants grow and nourish the animals that eat them who in turn nourish others. The the, the moon revolves around our planet and creates the tides and the tides in turn give life. It's astonishing that if a tiny thing were to change, if the moon was just to pop out of existence, if the earth was to tilt very slightly on its axis, just a few degrees, if we were just a tiny bit closer to the sun or a little bit further away, our existence would not be possible. If gravity were very, very slightly stronger or weaker, the universe couldn't exist as it currently does. Nothing would hold together. It is astonishing to think of the power and the, the, the unbelievable intricacy that exists in this universe. And God sits over it all. And then think for a moment of your life. The way that it is created, established, ordered, that God governs all things. He cares for you. He loves you. He nurtures you. He provides for you. He gives you every breath that you breathe in and exhale out. He gives you food and water and clothing and a family. He's created all of this. 
And we receive it. We walk around every single day in the midst of all of this. And for for many of us, for much of our lives, we have the gall to say that God doesn't exist. It's incredible. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, Paul says. Look at how amazing all of this is. And on top of all of that, God has saved you. He sent His Son. When you deny His presence, you want nothing to do with Him. You want to walk in your own way and do your own thing, which will only lead to death, as God has said in His Word, we find that God still draws in close to us, sends His Son to be our Savior, that we might be restored for all that we have done, everything wrong, He will still have us as His children. It's astonishing. And all of this is revealed to us, not just in in nature, but in God's Word. We find that God tells us He is coming to be our Savior in the person of Jesus through that work. From Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. We find that Jesus in the pages of the Gospels is born witness to, is testified to, that He is the coming Savior that God has spoken about for millennia. In Acts we find that as Jesus has died for the sins of a people for God's own glory, those people are sent out into the world and a church is born which is tiny and insignificant compared to the scale of the world and yet that church begins to transform the entirety of the world and as the epistles roll on and we move towards revelation we find that christ is explained to us the christian life is explained to us our lives daily lives are explained to us and then we're told there will come a day when christ will return And all that still exists in creation which is sinful will be done away with. And Jesus will make all things new and perfect. All of this is revealed to us in the Word of God. And so we find that as we focus on God's Word, we are astonished. Not just at the creative power of God that we see in the revelation of creation itself but in the saving of a people for himself, that he might love them and they might love him. Isn't it amazing that Christ's work in our place means that we might be made complete and lacking in nothing, that there might be no sin left uncovered and unpaid for when we come and Ask that we might be forgiven. Isn't it astonishing that Christ's work sustains us through every moment of our lives until the day we die or He returns? And all of this is testified to through the pages of Scripture. And God gives us His own Holy Spirit that we might understand. God reveals Himself to us and thus glorifies Himself in our lives. 
And as we see and read his revelation, we worship him as we consider deeply these things, take them to heart, and then order our lives according to what has been read. That we read that Christ alone can be our Savior, and so we cast ourselves upon Christ. We glorify God as we do that, because he has said it in his word, we have believed him, and we've trusted our eternal future to that promise. We find that Christ promises that he will go with us through this life, always leading and guiding us. And so as we read God's word and are guided by it daily, we glorify and honor God because he has revealed it. We have believed it and we have lived in light of it. As we go through difficult times, as we struggle, And yet we cling to the hope that Christ will see us through and one day will gather us into his presence. And as we look to the future and the second coming of Christ and make that our hope that carries us through, we glorify God because he has revealed it to us. We have believed him and it has become our confidence in the face of perhaps almost overwhelming sacrifice, suffering and struggle. We glorify God as we come before his holy word, as we see him in nature revealed, and we consider our place before him, and we are shaped by that revelation. And so as God's people, we want to glorify him because of the revelation he has given to each one of us. This is not a small thing, not a light thing, not merely some dusty book that God has have written down for us 2,000 years ago that is useful for us, that is good for us, but, but isn't essential. We glorify God first and foremost because of what he has revealed to us in his revelation, in his word and in his created world. But we find that this is how we glorify by taking it seriously, by living in light of what we have read. And I want to challenge you as a Christian people to that end. And I would challenge you as well, if you're not a Christian this morning, to consider God's Word, to read it, and to ask God in prayer that He will, if He is there, He will hear you and He will respond. He will help you to understand what He has written. And then I want to encourage you to read it. You have nothing to lose from this. But I simply want to challenge you to that end. We believe God's word makes sense of everything in this world, our whole lives. And we want you to know and understand as we do. Not that we are more clever, that we are more intelligent. We're not. We have simply been brought to this revelation and have considered it and that God has revealed himself to us through it. And we want you to share in that for your blessing, for your good, as well as for God's glory. So, we glorify God because of his revelation to us. But Paul goes on from that. It's not just the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God that we have through creation and through his word. It is also because of his authority over us. And we read in the second half of verse 33 um, through to 36, how unsearchable are God's judgments, how unsearchable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul says how unsearchable 
are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. Which is interesting because he's saying here that he worships God because he doesn't know or understand what God is doing. Which is a peculiar thing to say, isn't it? Surely we would worship God because we can see exactly what he's doing in the world and in our lives and therefore give glory to him. And Paul certainly wouldn't deny that. In fact, he's going to go on and and touch on that. He's already touched on that when he said in the first half of 33, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, all that we know about him from his word and through the way that he leads and guides us, certainly. But Paul is saying that he's glorifying God because although he is a sinner, he's been saved by God and he doesn't understand why. He he doesn't understand why God would ever want someone like Paul, like Saul of Tarsus, who went around deliberately persecuting the church of God, seeking to have Christian men and women dragged from their homes, sent to prison, and possibly even executed for the crime of worshipping God through Jesus. Paul doesn't get why God would ever want someone like him. And because he doesn't understand that, why he, God persists with a sinful people, why God persists with people, even sinners who've been saved like Paul, who go on struggling with sin. Because Paul doesn't understand that, he glorifies God. Because if it was down to Paul, or if it was down to you, or if it was down to me, we would have given up on people like us long ago. We would never have bothered with a people like us to begin with. But certainly after saving a a people like us who constantly fail God, we would have given up. And yet God doesn't. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable his ways? I don't know why God does this, but I'm giving glory to him that he does because I wouldn't be here if he hadn't. If he hadn't been so patient, so loving, so kind, so generous, so gracious and faithful to me. Glory to God. And then Paul goes on to say, for who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? We don't get how God thinks. Who's given a gift to God? None of us have justified our salvation. It's, It's not that we've given something to God and God has been so pleased with us that he's therefore saved us. That's not how salvation works. You can't do enough good things to make God pleased with you. Because everything you do is tainted and corrupted by sin. So it will always displease God, no matter how worthy it might be. Because it always speaks of your defiance against him, your love for yourself and for this world over him. No one's given a gift to God that they might be justified by God. No one has given a gift to God after they have become a Christian, after God has saved them, that in any way could compensate God for what he's done on their behalf. Paul goes on to say that. Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You, you can't give him a big enough gift for that. There's just nothing. God owns all of creation. When I read this, it reminded me of when um, I was a young boy and uh, I would come up to that time of year when it was a parent's holiday, uh, a, a birthday or it was, um, it was the Christmas holidays and we were coming towards Christmas Day and I realized, I'd begun to realize at, at that age, whatever age it was, four or five, that, that I was given gifts from other people and therefore I ought to give gifts to my mum and dad. But the problem was I didn't have any money. No four or five year old has enough money to go and buy suitable gifts for their parents. So 
So what did I do? And I found that I, I would find something in the house that I thought looked valuable, worthwhile, and would take that and wrap it up and then present that to my parents. But what I was doing was giving them something not only that they already owned, but that they had had to pay for themselves. And in fact, more than that, when my um, parents were, were given gifts by us, they had gone out and purchased the gift on my behalf wrapped it for me and then allowed me to give it to my mum or my dad or, or my grandparents, whoever it might be, and present it as if it was my gift to them when they'd paid for it and paid for the wrapping paper and, and taken the time to go and choose it and so on. It, it's a nonsense for a child to believe that they're truly giving a gift to their parent. And so it is with us. Paul says it's crazy. What gift could I ever give God? He owns everything in the universe, including me. So even when I come and submit myself to Him, ask for forgiveness and present myself as a sacrifice to God for His glory, even then I'm giving Him something He already owns. And Paul says... This is because of the authority of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God owns everything. God rules over all, governs all things because it all belongs to him. And because of God's authority over everything, because he owns everything, we are therefore to glorify God. Now we can understand this in light of our own lives in the present day. We have a government over us, whether it's the government in Holyrood or the government in Westminster. They have authority over us. We give them our money in taxes. We give them our um, loyalty in terms of our our service to our local communities and, and so on. And in compensation for that, they protect us. They ensure that food is imported into our country, that that is free that it's able to happen they ensure that there is a police service and a fire service and an ambulance service that we have an nhs to look after us an army and a navy and an air force to protect us from threats that might come from elsewhere our government does that and they ask us to place ourselves under their authority as as the price to be paid for all of those protections for all of that provision And Paul is saying something similar here. We are under God's authority, not because of anything we've done voluntarily as such, but we are nonetheless under God's authority and therefore the blessings we receive from him require us to glorify him. In fact, just being a human being made in the image of God to some degree, gives God glory because we constantly receive from him all that we need to survive. So the fact that we do survive bears witness to the gracious provision of God. That is not sufficient, I would argue, um, but it's where we all begin. But as a Christian people, we submit ourselves to Christ. We ask that we are forgiven our sins so that we might live with God forever. We might be spared death, the second death, everlasting death. We might be raised up to new life after we die and live with God forever in glory. And the cost of that is that we willingly submit ourselves to the authority of God in every area of our lives. And when we are obedient to God... We are glorifying him. We are testifying that we come under his authority, that his rule over our lives 
is sufficiently good that we ought to devote ourselves completely to that task. And so the more we devote ourselves to living for God, to loving Him, to testifying to Him, to telling other people about Him, to living in obedience to His Word, the more we glorify Him because we are saying His authority over us is not just good and right. We are saying, in effect, that it is fit for every area of our lives. Not just religious life. Not just life within church. But it's right that it governs our family lives at home. That it governs the way we interact with one another and the way that we speak and the way that we care for one another. Which is why it's so important we understand God's call to things like service of one another, generosity and humility and love for one another. These aren't just options or good guidance for a happy life. These are essentials for us as a Christian. There is no option. Because when we live the way God has told us to in His Word, we are saying we believe His authority is sufficient. That it's right that God should rule our family life, our church life, our community life, our national and international life. All of that should be brought under the authority, under the rule of God, because His rule is worthy. And so as we bring every area of life, every facet of life under the rule of Christ, we are glorifying God because of his authority, because of his place as our king over each one of us. It's a huge challenge to us because we're used to thinking about that in terms of church life. We give to the church, we serve in the church, we attend church, but then we tend to divorce our life at home or at work with family from that, but we can't. All of it must bear witness to the authority of God in our lives if we are to glorify God. It's the why and the how. This is why we glorify him, because he is over each one of us. He oversees every moment of our lives, and it's the how. We live in obedience to him, because he is the one who sits over each one of us. We can't worship God if we don't submit to his authority over our lives. Anything less isn't worship. It's a harsh, God's authority becomes a harsh, demeaning sort of authority that crushes and humiliates us. God comes instead, however, and is crushed for us, is humiliated on our behalf that we might have the joy of knowing and obeying him. And the two cannot be separated out. We glorify God because of his revelation. We glorify God because of his authority. And we glorify God because it is who we are now. Actually, it's who we've always been. But we've only realized that since becoming a Christian. Adam and Eve were created to bear witness to the creative power, the intelligence, to the grace and the goodness of a holy, perfect, all-powerful God. And they failed in that. And we live with the consequences of that. And every day we fail in that same task, lest we you know, look down upon Adam and Eve. We do no better and would have done no better were we in their place. I'm quite sure of that. But when Jesus comes to us, as our perfect sacrifice, places himself on the cross to die a painful, ignominious death for our sake, and therefore becomes our king, we find that he reshapes who we are. 
He turns us from being a people who are concerned only with our own authority, with our own glory in this life. What satisfies me, what fulfills me, this is worship of ourselves. He turns us from that way of life and points us to the way of life that worships God, that constantly glorifies Him, that says, I want to be about you. I want to focus on you and make you the center of everything I do in every facet of life. He realigns us with our original created purpose. And in so doing, He makes us to be the people that Paul describes in Verse 1 of chapter 12. I appear to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. Paul is saying that you are to live in accordance with what Jesus has already done in your life. And you live this out by presenting yourselves as living sacrifices. You worship God in every area of your life. You lay it all before God and ask that He might be glorified in this. And if God can't be, we lay that part of our life aside and don't go back to it. We use all things for the worship of a holy and perfect God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't live as the world lives because you have been spared that life transformed by Christ and made into a new creation. And when you live consistently with that new life, you will glorify God in everything you do. And we find that it is not just for life now. We find that as we look to eternity, we are being prepared for life to come when we will glorify God with no barriers, with, no, uh, with nothing to inhibit that praise, that worship, that glorifying. And we are being trained for that here and now. So that what begins now will be carried on in eternity. It's the core of who you are as a Christian man or woman that you live for the glory of God. If you're not regularly attending church, if you're not regularly coming before God's word, if you're not regularly praying and asking for his strength for you and your church family and your, uh, your wider family, then you are not living for God's glory and you're not going to be able to. You won't have the strength or the inclination. But instead, come and present yourselves, the whole of your life, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. This is what you were made for. This is why and how you glorify God now and forever to come. Amen. And now as you prepare to go out into the coming week and to live for God's glory, as we've been thinking about this morning, I want you to go knowing the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.